If you got your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 9, and we'll finish up that chapter today, verses 18 through 29. Genesis chapter 9 and verses 18 through uh, 29. Uh, before we get started this morning, I know most of y'all know that, that we lost somebody this week, John Brown, and uh, of course John always sat right there. Um, he was here every Sunday morning and uh, for, for a long, long time. And uh, I was thinking this week, it was kind of weird, you know, he died Thursday and Friday and Saturday I was kind of finishing up the lesson and I was, I was thinking about him and, and I was thinking, you know, if he could come back for, for one minute, for just one minute, he had, what would he, what would he say? And, and the, the thing that kept coming back to me was that old, that old hymn. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. And I think he would say this, keep learning, keep studying, keep pressing, because it's going to be, it's going to be worth it, worth it all, you know. So he, he left a little bit before us, but let me tell you, we're we right behind him. It's coming. We are right behind him. And so until that day comes for each one of us, we keep learning, we keep pressing, we just, we keep running. You never, ever stop. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, while everybody else is going fishing and laying in the bed or doing whatever they do, you keep pressing. You keep pressing, because one day, one day, it's going to be, it's going to be, be worth it all. Now, as we come to today's passage, uh, Again, Genesis chapter 9, we begin in verse 18. A fair amount of time has passed since they've gotten off the, the ark. Now, how do we know this? Well, the passage itself is going to give us some, some clues. First of all, we're going to find out that Noah has planted a vineyard. He's harvested the grapes. He's made wine out of it. So that in itself takes a, a period of time. Uh, and we don't know if it was the first, uh, first harvest season or the twelfth harvest season. We don't know. But the fact is, we know some time. He didn't just walk off the boat and, you know, have a drink of wine from some grapes that he planted, right? So some time has gone by. We also know the passage mentions uh, Ham's son, Canaan. Now, in chapter 10, we will find out that Canaan is the youngest of four sons. So, so Ham has already had four children by this time the youngest of who is, is Canaan, who's going to be mentioned here. So we've, we've had several years. So when it says uh, Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard, we're talking about several years now have, have gone by. Now, we come to this incident today, and to be really honest with you, this is going to be a bizarre incident. I was telling somebody on Friday that I love these... I, I, the harder it is, the more I love to teach it. Because it makes me get in and figure it out. Does that make sense? You know, for years I just read things and I'm thinking, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird. You just move on, right? But when you have to stop and teach it, it makes you study it. It makes you dive into it and figure it out. And to me, that, I like that. So the more bizarre, the weirder it is, uh, the, the more I actually enjoy uh, doing it. Now, and I'm going to be honest with you, this is a bizarre incident. And on the surface... It doesn't seem like it should be that bad of a thing. Certainly not bad enough to result in the cursing of a grandson and, and literally the cursing of, of all of his 
um, descendants. I mean, at the end of the day, a man walks in, he sees his father naked, he walks out, he tells his brothers about it, and his, and his, and his father curses his, grand, his, his grandson and all of his... I mean, it's just, it doesn't seem like it should be that bad. And in fact, of all the sins, I'm not saying you should go around trying to do that, but it happens, right? I mean, it, it, of all the sins somebody could do, that doesn't seem like it would really be uh, at the top of the list of the worst sins somebody could commit. In fact, on the surface for some people, it looks almost trivial, but it isn't. And in fact, as we dig into it, we're going to see that it's going to reveal two truths to us um, in, this, in this incident. One of these truths is a historical truth, and the other truth for us is a very personal uh, truth. So here's the first one. The first one it's going to reveal to us is a historical truth about Canaan. Um, and so let's, let's begin in verse 18 and 19. It says this, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it tells us in parentheses, as a kind of a side note, Ham was the father of Canaan. Now these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So right off the bat, you'll notice that... that now remember, who, who's the author of Genesis? It's Moses. So right off the bat, Moses mentions Canaan, just kind of throws him in there. Ham is the father of Canaan. In fact, if we read the entire passage, Canaan is going to be mentioned four times. So it's obvious that he is a big focus of what's going on here. And as I just mentioned, later in chapter 10, you're going to find out that Canaan is actually the youngest of four sons of Ham. So here's the question, why does he single Canaan out? Why not, first of all, Ham is the one that saw his father naked. Ham is the one that went and told his brothers. Why not Ham? Why isn't Ham cursed? And if he's going to curse one of the boys, why not, uh, why not one of the other, uh, other three? Why does he single out the youngest son, Canaan? Well, it's going to help us to remember, as I just said, that Moses is the author of Genesis. Moses is the one writing this. And if you remember, we talked about this several months ago. He's writing it after they leave Egypt. Remember, Moses leads all the Israelites out of Egypt, and they're wandering in the desert for 40 years before they go into the Promised Land. So he's writing Genesis in this time frame, after they've left Egypt and right before they go into the Promised Land. And he's actually going to read it to them right before they go in, right before he dies. He's going to sit down and he's going to read this book to them. In fact, he's going to read the first five books. And, and, and their wonderings are just about to be over. They're about to go into the promised land, which is also known as what? The land of Canaan. It's the, the land that they're about to take is actually the land that's occupied by Canaan's descendants. Okay? So there, that should give us a clue right there. And, and, and before they go into the promised land, before they go into the land of Canaan, Noah's grand, the, the descendants of Noah's grandson, this is what God tells them to do. Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 17. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall save alive nothing that breathes. In other words, when you go into that land and you go into these cities, kill everything that breathes. Men, women, children, goats, ox, donkeys, don't matter. Kill them all. And in fact, as an example, when they go to Jericho, 
This is exactly what happened. Joshua 6.21 records this. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. That's what God told them to do. Go in these cities and kill everything that, that breathes. Now, we could, we could chase a rabbit right here if we wanted to, and I'm going to chase it a little bit, but not stay gone too long. Why would God do this? Why would God tell them to go in there and kill men, women, children, ox, don't everything, wipe everything out? Well, you've got to remember, the nation of Israel is chosen by God to be a witness of the one true living God, Right? And in order to be what God wants them to be, they have to keep themselves pure from the influence of pagan religions. It says somewhere in the New Testament that um, bad company corrupts good morals. Doesn't it always work that way? It's not so much good affects the bad as the bad affects the good. And God understands that. So, so to, they have to keep themselves holy. The word holy means set apart. Be set apart. Do not let yourself be corrupted with these outside pagan influences. So what he does, he orders the destruction of the Canaanites. He, he orders the destruction so that their pagan religion, their pagan ways will be completely wiped out and they'll have no influence on the, the Jewish people. So all remnants of the pagan culture are to be uh, destroyed. Now... If you go out and you read anything about this, you'll hear people that are unbelievers say, well, I, I could never serve a God like that. That's, that's genocide. God's just wiping out a race of people just, just at, a, at a whim. I could never serve a God like that. So, And you'll hear them say this sometimes. Well, these are just innocent people. Folks, let me tell you, they are not innocent at all. God is not just practicing genocide. He's not just wiping them out on a whim. He's not just destroying them to make room for a, a chosen people. The Bible is clear. He's punishing them for their sins. Just If you get a chance later, we won't read it all today, but if you write this down, go back and read Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 is a summary of the sins of the Canaanites. And if you go through and read it, it is horrible. Not just idolatry, but incest, pedophiles. They're, they're sleeping with their own children. They're, they're killing their own children, burning them in the fire, sacrificing them to false gods. They're practicing homosexuality, bestiality. I mean, they are, they are as morally depraved as a people can be, and the Lord judged them for that. At the end of Leviticus 18, 24 to 25, it says this, He's talking to the Israelites. He says, do not defile yourselves with any of these things. Talking about all those things I just listed. For by all these things the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. So you need to understand, these are just innocent people living their lives. And, and God comes along and says, I'm going to wipe you out to make room. No. God says, I'm bringing their, their, their sin. It, it, they are so morally depraved as a people. And I've let this go on for centuries now. And now it's time to visit the judgment upon them. So that's what he's, that's what he's doing here. See, God, and, and, and listen, God didn't make them evil. God, they're doing exactly what they want to do. And they've done it now for centuries as God patiently waits. But now the fact is the, the, their, their sin has reached an intolerable limit and God is going to use the Jewish people to inflict His judgment upon them. 
And, and by the way, not only are they not innocent, not only are they, are they as bad as morally depraved as a people can get, they're also not ignorant. In other words, Scripture is clear that they knew about God, but they had rejected Him. You remember in Joshua 2, when the spies go into, uh, into Jericho and they meet Rahab the prostitute, and she says this to them in Joshua 2.11, I know the Lord has given you the land, for we've heard. We've heard. We know what you did. We, we know how God dried up the Red Sea and led you out of... Uh, uh, Forty years ago, that happened. We've heard about all that. And our hearts melded within us when we heard about it, but nobody changed. Nobody repented, except for just a few like, like Rahab. Nobody changed. They just kept on in their, in their morally depraved ways. So the Canaanites are to be destroyed. Now, let's just say we're the Jewish people, and God and Moses comes and says, hey, the Lord wants us to go into that land and kill everything that breathes, man, woman, child. Is that going to be easy? No. No, again, we, I say this over and over. Don't look back and, and think those people are different from us. They're not. Same fears, same feelings, same everything. That, that would no more have been easy for them, then it would be easy for us. It's going to be a very difficult thing to go into a land, take people's homes, and take their their lives. So if nothing else, this passage here in Genesis, where, where, where Moses is telling this story about Canaan, it, it helps the Jewish people understand the background of the Canaanite people. It helps them understand that these people are under a curse. These people are under a judgment from God. If nothing else, it gives them a historical justification for being the instrument of judgment that God is going to use against the Canaanite people. Does that make, does that make sense? So he's kind of, he's saying, listen, it, I'm not just going in there and telling you to kill them. Look, this has got a long history. So I want you to understand what you're going to be doing. Now, let's look at the incident it, itself. Verses 20 to 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and he lay uncovered, or he lay naked in his tent. Now listen, we are not going to make any attempt this morning to excuse what Noah did. If you go out and read this and study it, you'll hear people say, well, you know, after the, after the flood, the, before the flood, the wine wasn't fermented, and after the flood, it was fermented, and I, I, don't, I don't know anything about all that. I've never heard anything like that. Listen, the fact is, the man planted a vineyard, drank the wine, he got drunk and lay naked in his tent, right? And drunkenness is clearly a sin. Ephesians 5.18, Galatians 5.21, multiple scriptures, do not get drunk with wine. Do not get drunk. It's the exact opposite of the, of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. The fruit of the vine leans to, to discontrol or uncontrol or whatever the term is. That's why I don't do it. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, always remain in control. That's why drunkenness is a sin. However, as we read this passage, we got to remember that Moses does not emphasize the sin of Noah. That's not really, even though he sinned, that's clear, Moses is not going to emphasize his sin. He's actually going to emphasize the sin of Ham, which, by the way, is much more than just seeing his, his father naked, as we'll see here in just a minute. Let's read verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now here's the key right here. 
for years I read this and I had in my mind that, that somehow Ham went into the tent accidentally, saw his father naked, and he runs out and he goes and he, he, he went and found his brothers. That's not what it says. Read it very closely. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. They were standing right outside the tent. See, the idea, it seems that all three brothers are outside the tent. They're all right outside. Only one of them chooses to go inside. The other two will not go. See, it's not that Ham left and had to go find them. They were already there. I'm sure they may have been saying, man, don't go in that tent. And he's, you know, everybody with me? They're, they're all standing right outside. But while his two brothers refuse to go inside, Ham just marches right on in. Now listen, whatever the sin of Noah and whatever the failings of Noah, the fact is he's in the privacy of his own tent. And Shem and Japheth, they respected that. They stayed out of there, but not, but not Ham. So Ham goes in and he, first thing he does, he goes in, he violates his father's privacy. Now, once he's in there, I want you to notice this. He makes no attempt to cover his father. He makes no attempt to help him at all. He doesn't take a garment and cover him. He doesn't, doesn't, doesn't take a blanket and cover him up and, 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 and his shame and humility. He doesn't do any of that. So the first thing he does, he violates his privacy. The second thing he does, he makes no attempt to help him. Are you with me? None at all. And then the third thing he does, he just leaves him there naked. And then he walks outside and he humiliates his father by telling his brothers. He dishonors his father by telling his brothers. Hey man, he's in there. He's in there naked. And they, by the way, they know because they're about to go in and march in backwards. So he told them exactly the state that the father was in. Now listen, it's disrespectful, it's dishonorable, and it's also unloving. Listen, the New Testament tells us this, love covers wrongs. It doesn't put them on display. Are you with me? Love covers wrongs. It doesn't march outside and say, look, I was thinking this week about John. John and I, one time in this class, I'd said something that offended him. (laughs) And he wouldn't mind me telling this story. I didn't mean to offend him. He didn't mean to get offended. But anytime you teach or preach, you can ask Henry about this. Somebody's going to get offended, right? I mean, that happens. You've all been offended by something. She shouldn't have said that, right? So one day John got offended. Well, I heard about it. Somebody told me. So I called John. And I said, hey, I, I, you know, I wanted to talk about this. And so we talked about it a little bit on the phone. And, and at the end of the conversation, I said, so are we okay? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, this is just something I've got I've to work through. And, and, uh, and, and, and to be honest with you, the other day I was thinking about that. That came back. I had completely forgot about it. And I bet you John had completely forgot about it, which is exactly what love does. It's exactly what love does. Love doesn't say you're never going to get offended. Love doesn't say you're never going to get crosswise with one another. What love says is you cover it up, I mean, you deal with it, and you move on. You don't put it on display. Look what Derek did. Look what John... You don't do any of that stuff. You just... You you, you talk it out, you get through it, and you move on. And in fact, if a year later, you, you probably know you did the right thing when you can't even remember it even happened. Right? And that's one thing I really respected about him. But, but Ham doesn't do that. Ham puts it on display for his brothers. There's something inside of him that ain't right, to be honest with you. There's some kind of resentment up toward his father. In other words, it was almost a pleasure for him to see his father fall. Are you with me? 
There's something, when you, when you don't really love somebody the way you're supposed to, and they fall, there's kind of a pleasure in that. Oh, look at them. Right? See, above all else, this is his sin. He's disrespectful, he's dishonorable, he's, he's resentful, he's rebellious. There's something in his heart that's not right. And that's his sin more so than, than just seeing his father uncovered. Now look at verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and they walked backward and they covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So basically what they did is they took a garment, they put it on their back, and they walked backwards. And they got in there and they covered him up. They never saw him, they never looked at him. Now, let me, let's be honest. The, 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 um, the lengths to which they go not to see their father is almost absurd to us, right? But listen, we live in a different generation. We, to be quite honest with you, we've been desensitized to nudity. I mean, just drive down the road or, or, or turn on your TV. It's all over the place. We've been desensitized to it. But that was a different time. That was a big deal. We may not understand it. But that's okay. To them, it, it, it was, it was, you just did not do that for whatever, for whatever reason. But what I want you to notice is that in contrast to Ham, how they act toward their father, they act honorably toward him. They don't dishonor him, they honor him. They, they find no pleasure at all in, in his failures. They find no pleasure at all in his Sin. In other words, they act the way a loving son is supposed to act. They honor him. They respect him. They don't, they don't look down on him. And they maintain that, that honor. Now, let's, that's the incident. Now let's look at the curse. Verse 24. Now when Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, how did he know? We don't have a clue. I have no clue how he, how he knew what, what Ham had done. Maybe while he was drunk and all this was going on, maybe he was alert enough to, to, to know what was going on. Uh, perhaps Ham, after he left his brothers, went and told somebody else in the camp. After all, he couldn't keep his mouth shut with his brothers. What makes us think he ain't going to tell somebody else? Hey, guess what I saw? Guess what, guess what my dad's in there doing? Mr. Righteous Noah. I mean, who knows what he, what he told all them? But Noah wakes up, verse 25, and he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, this is really interesting. You know, we've been, we've been studying Noah now for weeks, maybe months, right? This is the first time he's ever spoken. These are the first and only, in, in verses 25 to 27, is the first and only words of Noah in the Bible. All this for 120 years, building the ark and a year on the ark, and we never hear one single word recorded. This is it. This is the only thing he ever, this is the only thing he ever said, which I got no idea of what that really means, but it's just, it's just interesting to me. Now that raises a lot of questions right here. Why, again, we go back to the beginning. Why did he curse Canaan? Why not Ham? Why not the other three kids? Why did he pick out the youngest of the four sons? Why did he curse the Canaanites? In other words, why did he curse the descendants? Of Cain, of Canaan, and not just Canaan himself. Why, do, why does a whole generation, why does a whole, whole multiple generations get cursed for the sin of one man? Now, let me, let me say a couple things here. First of all, I, I, don't, I can't answer that question. I don't know definitively. What I can tell you is this, and I want to make sure you understand that this is not voodoo. I want to make sure you understand that. You never see this in the Bible. Noah is not putting a hex on Canaan. 
so that somehow Canaan becomes what he never would have become. Everybody with me? He's not putting a hex on Canaan, so somehow one day Canaan behaves in a way that normally he wouldn't have behaved. That's not, that's voodoo. This is not voodoo. This is not what's going on here at all. He's not, by the way, Noah's also not fixing the fate of every Canaanite who's ever going to live. For example, Rahab. Rahab escaped. She was saved. And she was a Canaanite. So he's not fixing the fate of every single one. They still have their own, the ability to make their own choices. What Noah is doing here, he's prophesying, he's predicting what is going to happen in the years to come. In other words, by God's inspiration, he reaches into the family of Ham and he places that curse exactly where it's supposed to go. And that is on the youngest son, Canaan. He's prophesying of Canaan's unbelief, and he's prophesying of the unbelief of Canaan's um, descendants. Now, verse 26. He also goes on to say, blessed... So he's, he's cursed Canaan, and then he wants to, to do a couple of blessings. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So the two boys that did the right thing, he's going to bless them. So the first thing he does is he blesses the older which is Shem. And I want you to notice what he does. This is really interesting. He actually blesses the Lord. He doesn't bless Shem. He blesses the Lord. But then notice this phrase, the God of Shem. See, the blessings to Shem is going to flow out of his relationship with God. He's not blessed just, just hey, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's Shem. I'm going to bless him no matter what he does in the future. No. What he's saying here is the blessings on Shem are going to flow out of his relationship with his God. So the blessings on Shem comes not from Shem, but actually through him and his relationship with God. And by the way, that's exactly what happened. If you trace it down, out of Shem's lineage come Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and out of Shem's lineage will come Jesus Christ himself. So this is a, this is a, a prophecy, a prediction of what's going to happen through the lineage of, of, of Shem. Verse 27, he says this, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his service. He, servants. He's, he's, he's blessing him in two ways. Number one, you're going to grow large as a people. His descendants will become great nations, and, and we'll see this in chapter 10, and they'll populate the earth. But the also other thing he's going to say, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Shem is the ancestor of all the Jews. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So he's saying, let him dwell in peace with the Jews. Let him dwell in peace with the descendants of his brother Shem. And that's exactly what happened. All the peoples that come out, the Canaanites are the Middle East people. The, the, the descendants of, of, of Ham are the Canaanites, Middle Easters, Arabs. And they hate the Jews with an absolute passion even today. But you go back and look at Ham and it's more the Europeans and, and, the, and the Asians and that group right there that come out of Japheth. And, and for the most part, they've lived in peace with, with, with Israel throughout the years. So again, we'll see that as we move into chapter 10 um, uh, later, uh, probably into next week. Now... I said that this passage here today is going to teach us two lessons. The first one is historical, and that's about Canaan. The second lesson that it's going to teach us is more personal, okay? And that, and I just entitled this, Sin Reigns. 
It is always shocking, is it not? And we see this, I don't think, we see this all the time. Isn't it shocking and sad when a good man falls? Right? You see, we see it every day. Some evangelist, some pastor, some head of a seminary. It just seems like it's just happening all the time. A good man falls. We find out he's, he's had sexual improprieties or financial improprieties or whatever the case may be. You see, somehow, and I know this, I hope this is true for you. I know it's true for me. Somehow, we want to believe that if a person has walked with God for a long time, that somehow you start to build up an immunity to sin. I think there's just something in us that thinks if you walk with God for a long time, that somehow you, you've built up an immunity. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't even be susceptible to those things, those temptations. I mean, man, you've been walking with God for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. How, how could you do that? But you see, the fact is, it just isn't so. I was having, Breakfast with Ron Huddleston uh, Friday morning. Now he and I were talking about this, and and I told him, you know, when I was 25 years old, I read this story differently than I do today. And here's why: when I was 25, my, young, my oldest son Josh was born, and I remember distinctly thinking at 25 years old, I want to be a better man. I need to be a better man. I've got to be a better man. And, and, and at that time, I had all this time ahead of me to become a better man. Everybody with me? I can do this. But then all of a sudden, my granddaughter comes along at 52, and I remember distinctly thinking, I want to be a better man. I need to be a better man. I've got to be a better man. You see, at 55, I'm different than I was at 25. See, I know now I read the story differently. Because I can, I've experienced. I thought at 25 I've got plenty of time to be a better man. Now I'm 55 and I, I'm thinking, what, what's happened here? Are you with me? See, I've learned that no matter how long you've been a Christian, you never become invulnerable to sin. I don't care how long you've walked with Him. I don't care how much Bible knowledge you've got. You never, there's not a shot of immunity that you're not, you're not vulnerable to temptation. You're not vulnerable to thinking things you shouldn't think and saying things you shouldn't say and doing things you didn't, you didn't do. See, we look around church and we look at Pastor Henry and we look at some of the, and we think, well, they're probably, they don't experience it. Sure they do. They, they, they deal with, it never goes away. You never reach a point where you're just, you're just immune. And today's passage and Noah in particular is exhibit A. Listen, folks, he's six hundred years old. He's not 55. He's 600. For 600, actually 601, for 601 years, this man has, has walked with the Lord. This is a man who, when everybody else in the world was evil and wicked and he rebelled against God, he stood all by himself. Stood all by himself. This is a man who, he's the only man on earth whom God said, you're a righteous man, I'm going to save you and your family. He, he has an opportunity here to launch a new beginning for the human race. Now just think about this for one second. I was thinking about this this week. What do you think they were thinking when they got off the boat? 
What do you think? Here we, here we are. You know, they know Adam. They knew the story of Adam and how God gave Adam and Eve and said, populate the earth. And now he comes to, to Noah and his family. He tells them, populate the earth. Be fruitful. What do you think they're th- I'm telling you what they're thinking. They're thinking, we can do it better. You see, as we, as we come to this passage, you gotta understand, this is where post-flood life has really now begun. God has, God has made a covenant with them. I'm not gonna destroy you with rain anymore. Go, go be fruitful and multiply the earth. It's a new beginning. It's a fresh start. And I'm telling you, what they're thinking is, we can do better. We can do better this time. Perhaps it's on their mind that they might even create another paradise. Maybe, maybe they can even restore Eden. I mean, after all, if anybody should be able to live a righteous life, shouldn't it be Noah and his family? As we just said, their past history shows what they're capable of. They stood righteously before God when the whole world, and literally the whole world, went the other way. They've served God for a 600 years. He's been serving God. At least for the last 100, 100, 120, he's been building that boat and everybody laughing at him and he stands strong before God. God himself considered Noah to be righteous and, and, and to be worthy of being spared. They're one family, right? If you got one family and they're all righteous, surely we can help one another. We can support one another. And by the way, they no longer have the influence of an evil society. You ever think, boy, if I could just get rid of the phone, if I could just get rid of the TV, if I just didn't have all these other people, yeah, 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 you know, I could really be righteous. Yes? Well, if I could just get rid of all the influences, I could be a righteous man. Well, Noah got rid of all that. It's all gone, man. They're all dead. Nobody's, nobody's trying to influence. Surely if it can be done, Noah and his family can, can do it. But see, there's one little teensy, eensy problem. And that's this thing called sin, which doesn't drown in the flood. In fact, all that one year they're on the ark, sin is right there on the ark with them, living right inside of Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, and all their, all their wives. And when they walk off that boat, sin walks right off the boat with them. Yeah, you see, it's a fresh start. It's a new beginning, but it's the same old mankind. It's the same old humanity. It's the same old sin nature. So what happens eventually? Noah gets drunk. He falls. He lies naked in his tent. And if we were there, we'd say, man, that's shocking. That's disgraceful. How, how, how in the world could he let that happen after walking with God? Is this the same Noah? Is this the Noah that God himself said that is a righteous man? Has he, has he lost his salvation? Is he, is he completely backslid? Now, I'm not going to make, as I said today, I don't make any attempt to exonerate Noah. Some people will try to do that, but I don't do that. What we should do is learn from it. And that's what these stories are for, is for you and I personally to learn from it. So here's a few things I think Noah's sin shows us. Number one, even the most godly people are prone to sin. Even the most godly people are prone to sin. I'm going to be honest with you. If you sit here today 
and say, how could Noah do that? You don't know your own heart. I'm sorry. You may not, you may not like that. That may even offend you. But if you don't understand that, that a man is capable of that, even after walking for God, with God all them years, you do not know your own heart. Listen, Noah is a godly man. He is a godly man. In fact, Noah is one of the most righteous men to ever live. Years later, I'll give you a couple scriptures. Years later, in Ezekiel, this is way after this has happened, God is, is prophesying through Ezekiel, and He says this, this is Ezekiel 14, 12-14, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, even if these three men... Were li- what he's saying is, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were living in that land, I would save those men, but I would still destroy the land. When, when God has an opportunity years later to point out three men that he considers righteous. He picks Noah, he picks Daniel, and he picks Job. The same Noah who got drunk and laid in his tent. See, that, that was a godly man. It was a righteous man. He didn't quit being godly. He didn't stop being righteous, but he made a mistake and he sinned. He's still a righteous man. We can't... He didn't just... Everybody with me? That didn't change. He just messed up. Of course, in Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith, where the writer of Hebrews takes the time to to pick out these great men and women of God, he says this in verse 7, By faith Noah. And it goes on to say what he did, being warned by God concerning events and reverent fear constructed an ark, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me tell you, Noah's in heaven right now. He was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. But yet he got drunk and laid in his tent. And that shows us even the most righteous of men on this earth, the most godly men and women on this earth are still prone to sin. And if it could happen to him, let me tell you folks, it can happen to me. And it can happen to you. And I'll just point out 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands... Be very, very careful. Be very careful. Past godliness doesn't guarantee future godliness. You don't build up an immunity, an invulnerability towards sin. You've got to walk in dependence on the Lord and the Holy Spirit every single day. You don't come to a point where you just think, well, I got this, I don't need you, Spirit. I got it. I tell you what, you will fall like that. He's the one guarding us. He's the one empowering us. He's the one helping us. You wake up every day and you depend on Him. Get me through this day. George Mueller, if y'all don't know who George Mueller is, he guy, I think he lived in the 1800s over in England. Godly, godly man. And there's a story where he prayed, somebody heard him praying, God, don't let me become a wicked old man. And they heard that prayer and they think, how could he pray that? But see, he knew his own heart. From the outside, everybody thinks, well, he's just the most godly. He's got to be invulnerable. But on the inside, he knew very well that he wasn't. And he prayed every day, God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. Number two, not only are we prone to sin, we are most vulnerable when the pressure is off. We are most vulnerable when the pressure is off. See, when Noah, it's this crazy thing, right? When he's surrounded by evil, when he's surrounded by wickedness, 
when he's surrounded by people, you know, laughing at him and berating him and humiliating him, he's fine. (laughs) Hey. But you see, when the pressure is off, that's when we tend to let our, our guard down. You see, our enemy is constantly looking for an opening. He goes around like a roaring lion and he's looking. He's all, you watch a lion and, and they don't just, they don't just run in and just get whatever they can get. They always look for an opening. They find the weakest, don't they? They find the one that's trailing behind, that's not protected and they, they, they go after that one. He's always looking for an opening. And if you want to live a righteous life, you have to be aware of this. Constant vigilance, constant vigilance, constant vigilance is the price of victory over sin. Number three, we've just got a couple minutes. Sin, even small sin, always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Noah's drunkenness, if Noah hadn't got drunk, Ham doesn't seem. If Ham doesn't seem, there's not a curse. Everybody with me? See, sometimes it shows us that sins, even sins that don't seem that big at the time, can have far-reaching consequences, even not only for us and our children, but even for our um, descendants. A trickle of sin, if you're a parent here today, a trickle of sin in a parent can sometimes lead to a flow of sin in a child. Just a trickle of sin can open the gates to a flow of sin. Like it or not, whether you like this or not, the sins of the parents do affect the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. Sometimes what you do has effects all the way down the line. I I don't know if you ever noticed this, but sin is a lot like a... You ever notice how sin is kind of like a chain reaction? For example, if you're if you're born to uh, abusive parents or alcoholic parents or something like that, instead of responding with love, you respond a lot of times in the exact wrong way. You'll emulate that, or you'll you'll respond you'll hate them. Or everybody with me, you almost respond back with negative. Or, or let me give you a better example of this. If you ever have a spouse that's self-centered, how do you respond? You'll normally respond by being self-centered. Well, if she's going to be that way, well, then I'll just show her. You don't respond with love. You don't respond with good. You respond with your own sin. It's something about sin that seems to set off this chain reaction that we need to be very careful of. Let's close with the final two verses. Chapter 9, verses 28 to 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. In the end, Noah is a godly man. Noah is a righteous man, but Noah still dies Because even for a believer, the wages of sin still is a physical death. It's true for Noah. Uh, It was true this week for John, and it's going to be true for each and every one of us. It's coming. It's coming. You see, even after the flood, sin still reigns. But like Shem and Ham and Japheth, we all have a choice, right? We can give into it like like, like Ham, or we can overcome it like Shem and Japheth. We can fight that. Which one are we going to do? Blessing or cursing? I was thinking the perfect way to end is, is Deuteronomy eleven twenty six to 28 because this is, was true for the Israelites and it's true for each and every one of us. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you today and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God 
but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today. That's true for every one of us. As we walk out of this class, what's set before us is, am I going to give in to sin, or am I going to overcome it? Am I going to walk in the blessings of God, or am I going to walk in the curse of those who, who do not obey Him? Which one are we going to, to do? Next week, we'll pick up with uh, chapter 10. We'll probably cover the whole chapter. Um, and it kind of talks about how, how all the people, the different nations come out of Shem and Ham and, and Japheth. And there's a lot of really interesting things there. And we will look forward to that. Let's